You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. We're talking about horror movies with a lot of character development that might focus more on the inner workings of a character's mind as opposed to just all the blood and guts you typically might see in uh, especially a horror movie found today. My guest to talk about all this crazy stuff in the month of October and Halloween is Ian. How's it going, buddy? Couldn't be better. I've been looking forward to this because you are a real horror fan, unlike myself, and I needed somebody's help in talking about the genre, and I know you're the guy to go to. (laughs) Uh, Give me a little taste of your history with horror movies. What did you start to watch? How old were you when you got into it? All that good stuff. As early as I can remember, I was just fascinated by the graveyards and Whenever I was in the library at our school, I would go to the horror section and memorize every ghost story I could. My parents actually didn't let me watch horror movies for a long time. It really sheltered me, but anything I could get my hands on, I was just all about it. Definitely for horror movies, the first one that really got to me was uh, The Sixth Sense. I saw that in the theater when I was about 12. It destroyed me. You know, I, I actually don't like a lot of the horror movies I watch. But I'm always looking for like, oh, even a bad horror movie might have one scene that affects me like I was affected when I was 12 watching Sixth Sense. And what are some similarities between the various movies that you do think do horror really well? One kind of main thing, and I think we're going to definitely be jumping into this, the character development and story outside of the scares, if you will. So I think good horror movies, they'll, like, it's, it's very easy to do a jump scare, let's say, you know, you, ju- you just have something jump out, have a big loud sound happen. And people, yeah, it'll give you a small jump, but that's not, I wouldn't even really say that's a real scare. That's just kind of like, it's just so easy. But the things I find scarier are when it is involving the plot and the characters. Not, you know, uh, body counts or anything like that. Who are some of your favorite franchises? I think I'd probably have to say Halloween, although I don't, I don't think those are the best films, but as far as, like, if I had to pick one of these kind of horror franchises, I just like the character of Michael Myers. I like how he looks, and I kind of like the overall theme of the Halloween movies, but yeah, there's a bunch of crap in there. I'm very unpopular on this opinion, I actually think Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween, I thought that was like deeply disturbing. I, I thought that was actually by far the scariest one in the franchise. People did not like it because it kind of took the fun out of <laughs> a slasher flick. You know, it was like... It was too real. Yeah, very real. Like she's stabbing them and they're crying and screaming and they don't just die right away. And then the friend's coming and finding them and they're playing it super straight. Like, oh, what would you react like if your high school friend just got stabbed? You know, everyone's just kind of losing it. And then it's just it's just relentless. And I found it very scary. But yeah, not like not exactly not at all pleasant experience. I saw that in the theater and it was intense. 
you know, I was kind of like, oh, Rob Zombie, Halloween, great, let's go, let's go ahead, and it ended up being, I don't really like his other films, but that was, that was something else, but it, it, people hated it, I don't know. Well, it's a, it's a weird thing to have, especially as far as an American audience, they want to be scared, they supposedly want the, the blood and gore, but it has to be unrealistic to a certain extent. The moment that line gets more toward real stuff, then they don't want to watch it anymore. But then I give those filmmakers credit because they are really examining how it would really play, and the, the stakes and the consequences are just so much more palpable in those types of movies. So, you know, the, a lot of horror audiences seem to just just want that cheap jump scare that you're talking about earlier instead of actually putting themselves into these situations and really seeing just how horrific it could really be. A good example of that is Hereditary, which did pretty well at the box office, but that, was, that had some serious darkness to it. And I remember a lot of the reviews and not just from critics, but from just general audiences, was like, oh, that movie was too much. They went too far, blah, blah, blah. For me, I'm, I'm ready to be scared, but um, I think they, 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 maybe they're like, oh, I've seen The Conjuring. Okay, I, I get what a horror movie's supposed to be like, as it were. They're, they're, they're like, okay, we don't want to go too far here. Let's just have, a, let's have like a spooky doll turn its head. Horror movies should make you feel uncomfortable at some point during the movie. If you don't really feel some kind of discomfort, then it's not really achieving what it should. Audiences in the past, let's say, in the, you look at big successful horror movies from the 70s and 80s, they are more dark and more realistic, generally speaking, and generally just better films. I don't know, everything needs, I think that PG-13 rating really ruined a lot of the genre because they're like, oh, now, no one under 17 gets to go see this. Okay, let's, let's kind of, you know, water this down, make it a little less violent, a little less scary. Well, so we got two movies we're going to talk about today. And the first one is Rosemary's Baby from 1968. And this is the one that you chose for the episode, Ian. So give us a little uh, description of the plot. Uh, you have this young couple uh, played by Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes, who's one of my favorite directors as well, but he's also a great actor. And they're moving into this like very creepy, big old apartment building in Manhattan, I think. Right from the beginning, just if you're kind of paying attention, things are just kind of being slightly off. Right before they move in, they're talking to a, uh, an old friend of theirs, and they bring up some creepy stuff that's happened. Like they bring up a little bit of the history, but they don't really ham it up. So if you're kind of just if you don't know what the movie's going to be about, it's, it's very subtly set up. But anyways, they end up um, befriending this elderly couple that lives next door. Our main character, Rosemary is slowly becoming suspicious of this whole kind of new group of people they're meeting, whereas her husband is just kind of telling it's her it's all in her head. And oh yeah, and obviously, yes, she becomes pregnant. And I mean, I, I don't know, are, are we, do we kind of go into the whole plot here? Are we trying to be spoiler free? 
seeing as how you had seen this movie before, and this was my first time ever watching it, uh, something that I loved about this movie was how it went back and forth between is it really supernatural or is it just maybe she's having issues related to her pregnancy or maybe mental illness not related to it? This movie really vacillates between the two ideas of what's going on almost until like the last 10 minutes of the movie, which was pretty great. The restraint that they showed, you know, now I think a Hollywood executive producer would be like, this is too slow. We need to show some more stuff. People are going to be getting bored. It's just the restraint to not just kind of hit us over the head with anything. It's perfect slow burn. And yeah, leaving it right to the end there is just like, uh, yeah, fantastic. But I remember seeing it in high school when I was, you know, younger, and I was like, when is the stuff going to happen? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, anything that I didn't like when I was in high school is like, that's a good barometer for me to be like, I should go watch that again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. It means you've done a lot of personal growth. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I I guess so, yeah. Speaking of restraint, uh, I loved how the score was never overly intrusive or obvious. And there's some moments that play like they could be sinister in a supernatural fashion. But the music where in another movie, a cheaper movie, you might expect that music to come in there and and heighten the scariness and really telegraph that, oh yeah, this guy's up to no good and and he wants to, uh, you know, he wants to worship Satan or something. But in this movie, when you're expecting the music to come in and tell you what's happening in the scene, it doesn't. And it leaves it up to you to interpret what's going on. Very astute point there, yeah. The the score can generally do that, just kind of clearly explain the movie's intention. For a movie like this, where we should be we should be basically like Rosemary. I mean, not that she's just the main character, but we don't see things happening outside of her world. I mean, we're following her the whole time. So she's confused. So we're also confused. That makes us connect with her more. And we are both trying to figure out what's going on together. And that makes it just a much more enjoyable experience. And yeah, the music would have, could have very easily destroyed that. They did a perfect job. The music does get quite crazy at the end, but then that's when she's reacting in that way. Considering this movie is over 130 minutes long, I found myself dipping in and out whether or not I wanted it to be some domestic squabble she's having dialed up to 11, or in the course of her pregnancy... Maybe she is harboring the son of Satan in her belly. And at first, I, I wanted it to be supernatural, some occult thing going on because of her uh, weirdo neighbors. But then, as I got closer to the end, I actually wanted it more to be totally straight and actually just a problem she's having. Did you have a preference one way or the other? Yeah, I think I, I mean, I think I mostly wanted it to be supernatural. But I think, yeah, I think as it was going, 
I remember thinking, oh, this would be really cool if this is, if everything is kind of in her head. Because that, you know, at that point, now that I'm expecting a supernatural thing, then I'm thinking, oh, that would be even a better plot reveal. You know, that would be more surprising if it doesn't go in this direction. I'm not going to give away which direction it ends up going in. Last night watching this again was probably the third time I've watched it. Just noticed a lot more. There's so many things that are subtly showing that around her, these other people are doing kind of mischievous things. Oh, weird that he's suddenly showing up at the house now. Oh, weird that that character heard this line and just left the room. You're focusing on Rosemary the whole time, but actually in the frame, there's other stuff going on. In aggregate, you know, all of these little kind of weird things happening. It's actually just a perfect way to subtly show what's happening without actually showing it. I, I would anyone that likes this movie on the first viewing, I really would say go watch it again because you're gonna you're gonna have an even better time now that you know what the movie's about. There are too many films that operate on at least two or more levels where every little detail that happens, it just depends on how far you want to buy into it as far as is it something demonish that's happening to her or is it totally just real and maybe schizophrenia or something else? Like the moment you described and stuff involving her husband, Guy, who certain moments he comes off like a total bastard. And if you want to believe it's because he's in league with the occultists, then that's the motivation. But you could just as easily say for most of the movie, well, no, you don't have to read too much into this. This is just a guy who isn't very enlightened and is a bit of a cad. So it seems like, oh, maybe this guy's just super career-focused. Uh, has to afford this massive new apartment and is just like not really paying attention to his you know, pregnant wife. Not a great way to be, but he's also not beating her or anything, or there's nothing exactly too clearly, oh, this, this guy's just a total asshole. The movie just doesn't give you a big red flag ever. If she got a huge red flag, then she's out of there too, right? She has to keep kind of doubting the situation as well. I think also the main thing that makes this whole thing work is that they're very they're a very likable couple right from the beginning of the movie. You know, when they're taking that tour around the, the apartment, you just like their banter feels very realistic. They're kind of joking to each other. They're just sitting in the living room and it's like this wide shot and they just feel like a really like a couple you might want to hang out with. For me it operated on a different scary level because I'm a bit antisocial, so once that old couple started coming around like every other day, that was horrific to me, and that's why this movie could not have been about the devil or, or anything spooky like that, and it still would have been horrific just because of how, how many times they come around and they stick their nose in her business, and oh my god, I was, I was rooting for her to get rid of that couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're so intrusive. I mean, yeah, she just keeps knocking on the door. Oh, uh, yeah, and and then and and the main character is like she's also like they're so nosy, but the guy doesn't. He's more of an extrovert. He doesn't really care. That's great. Yeah, you read into it that way. Yeah, that's. 
Yeah, that's very palpable. And it's funny because right at first, she's the one that wants to go uh, meet with them. He's saying like, oh, we make friends with an older couple like that. We'll never get rid of them. He ends up being the one encouraging that later. As far as the length of this movie, if you want to shave some minutes off this sucker, because it goes on for a bit, if you just know the very basics of how the movie starts, that they're a couple, they moved into this place, nosy neighbors, and just start the movie about half an hour into it when she has that, uh, that rape dream. Because that's, that's really the first instance of anything really weird happening that might give you a clue that something else is going on. There's so much domestic stuff leading up to that. I was getting a little bored during that part. So as far as this being a character-driven horror film, which I think it totally is, like we talked about, I like that it really focuses on the character and doesn't rely on violence. But if we were to try to make this scarier or a bit more in line with what people usually think of for horror films, can you think of any aspects you might ramp up or scenes you might include some gore to uh, kick things up a notch? Maybe not gore specifically. I really like the dream sequences at the beginning. And they kind of set up that she's going to be having these kind of dreams. And the, you know, at the beginning, it's more, mostly she's like on a, on a boat or something. And there's this whole sequence where she's looking, she sees these like nuns. I found that stuff to be really effective. There's this kind of nightmare aspect of the dream where there's this demon there. And she's going like, this isn't a dream. This is really happening. Like she actually says that out loud. But you also don't know whether to believe her there, you know? And I, I thought maybe, like, as this is progressing, maybe the dream's getting more and more disturbing, and also she doesn't know whether it's happening or not. And, you know, I think there were probably more opportunities for her to see different disturbing things. But I, we could have, like, I, I really enjoyed the dreams at the beginning of Rosemary's Baby, and I, I'm not sure why they decided not to continue that, because like, you kind of feel like that's going to go throughout the movie, and then it's kind of over with. I give the movie a gold star for having just about a non-existent body count. However, one of my favorite moments in the movie is when Rosemary is really losing it. She really doesn't know who she can trust, and she doesn't trust her doctor and her husband by this point. And they're pursuing her up into her apartment. While she's trying to get away from them, I was kind of hoping to see her take a knife or scissors or something and just fight them off in some fashion. Something that just punctuates what's happening and, and makes it disturbing. Because even by this point, we're not entirely sure if she's justified in not trusting these people. And if it turned out to be all in her head... Because I'm, I'm there thinking, oh my god, you know, how far is she willing to go to get away from these people? Could she hurt somebody? And in doing so, maybe it's a nail in her coffin, because it turns out it's all in her head. Yeah, you're thinking like, you know, she ends up getting to the apartment. The husband is kind of reaching through the door there. If she had kind of stabbed his hand or something, then it would be like a, 
one of those like, oh, I, how could you do this to me? And you and you know maybe she would have that kind of like, oh my God, what's what's wrong with me? Yeah, that may be a bit of a missed opportunity there. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> if I'm in that situation with her, like I'm, I'm definitely grabbing all the knives. <laughs> yeah. They really walk this tightrope of giving her agency, but having her also be extremely helpless. Well, that too. So much of the movie, she's she's such a victim, either real or perceived, that it would have been nice to see her take a little bit more control toward the end. There is something, if you give the character too much agency, now they're kind of a hero type, and you're expecting that they're going to win. How much agency do you give a character to where they, they, they cease to be a victim? If you were to meet one of our listeners who has heard us talk about Rosemary's Baby, and they're still a little bit on the fence, what would you want them to know, or what would you say to them to just get them over that edge and get them to watch it? It's a family drama. I wouldn't say love story, but it's a you know domestic kind of drama that's played really straight and just some amazing acting. The editing on this film is very modern. One sentence that kind of sticks and then it just cuts. And I think it's, it keeps it exciting and interesting in a way that it's a much more modern kind of style of editing. Um, so even though this is an older movie, I think you will, you'll be engaged without being like, oh, well, you know, it was made in the 70s, so it's going to be a little slower and kind of clunky. This has a very streamlined feel. So I think it, it works uh, a modern audience, as long as they choose to engage with it, are going to have a good time watching it. So, moving on from 1968, we're going to fast forward up to 1983 with The Dead Zone, an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. It's about a school teacher who gets into a car accident that sends him into a coma for five years. And when he wakes up, he discovers he can touch people and see their past, present, or future. And, of course, all the notoriety and problems that come with that ability really take a toll on his life. You hadn't seen The Dead Zone before, correct? That's correct, yeah. We're doing a great switcheroo where I've seen this at least a handful of times. You're totally brand new to it. Tell me, what were your initial thoughts after you finished the movie? It was something I wanted to watch just because I know that this plot has been borrowed and parodied. It's become part of culture. But yeah, I did find the movie to be like pretty flawed. My main kind of first takeaway was, and I, and I ended up Googling like how long is the book, but it just felt like, I think it's something like 400 something pages, which actually isn't that long either. But it felt like, oh, the book must be longer than this because it feels like we're only seeing clips of the story. Things get set up right before they happen, and then you know, new things getting set up. I found it to be very fast-paced. Well, we'll get into it later, but yeah, it had some things that actually did, or at least one scene in particular that actually did give me a scare, which I wasn't expecting at that point in the film. Let's not wait on that. What, what scene was it? Um, I'm shocked that something actually goosed you in this. I was too. I, I was pretty, I was kind of sitting, you know, I was just like, okay, well, this isn't going to be a scary movie. I'm fine, you know. 
Did it involve a scene with the serial killer? It didn't actually, no. Ooh, okay, what was it? His love interest has come over and she's campaigning for this, this new candidate. It's like Charlie Sheen character. And then he has this kind of boy that he's been tutoring and he just, he's crying because she was just there and he ends up, you know, touching the boy and then suddenly there's this, you know, this sound effect of this ring, kind of like creepy note on a, I don't know, this kind of standard horror movie sound. And you get this image of like a kid just underwater in a hockey uniform. Kids just falling through the ice. And just the, the image of, yeah, these, these young kids are falling into this ice cold water in the dark. It's just like, it's actually not, I mean, in, the way, in a way, it's not like scary in itself, which is what I like about it. It wasn't just some creepy face or something like that. It's just like being like, oh my God, children drowning in an ice cold pond. That's like a dark image. I was like, whoa, that was, and also I was watching with my girlfriend and she was also like, that was good. Like, it's like, yeah, wow, I was not expecting that. I could have used more of that, I think, throughout the film. And talking about, uh, not Charlie, but Martin Sheen character. Oh, it's Martin Sheen, yeah. Martin Sheen playing Greg Stilson, who is a political candidate that he has a southern accent, but you know where the movie's supposed to take place, right? Uh, no, it just seemed like kind of standard New England or Pennsylvania or something. I, I, um... New Hampshire, man. It took place in New Hampshire. Oh, no way. It takes place in a fictional county called Castle County, which is stupid. I don't know why they needed to make that part fictional, but uh, yeah, the plates. Look at the plates. They say live free or die. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Well, I really should have been. I think I assumed it was Maine because of Stephen King. You know, he's generally writing about Maine. True, but some of his movies take place in New Hampshire. Oh, well, that's I mean, I definitely felt, like, nostalgic throughout the whole thing. It was like, this looks... So is that Canopy Lake Park they're at at the beginning on that uh, roller coaster? I don't know if that was their inspiration. I don't believe any of the movie was actually shot in New Hampshire, but I think they did a great job of making it look like it. Generally, any kind of Stephen King adaptation is a little more effective for me just because of it looks like where I'm from. I have a lot of problems with Stephen King material, his books and the movies, but something they always get right in both of them is just that small town feel. Absolutely, yeah. This did that as well, 100%, yeah. So Martin Sheen, he's the charismatic candidate bringing his snake oil for everybody to buy into. And I, I found his performance just so charming, charmingly evil. Unlike Rosemary's Baby, they should be playing evil music every time he's talking because it really isn't hiding the fact that he's the antagonist of this thing. Yeah, that is played right on the face. That is very clear. Even to the point where he... He has this, like, goon with him all the time. He plays it very much like a mafia kind of goon. About, I, I don't know how far it is into the movie. I mean, I think, I think he's introduced maybe an hour in or more. They suddenly have this scene where it's just him, like Stilson and his goon going to a, a reporter and, like, blackmailing him to not release this kind of scathing editorial. 
And it plays very much like almost like a mafia film. If you're two thirds of the way through the movie and you've been with the main character the entire time, just kind of suddenly cutting to this side plot was, I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> True. As you're watching it, it doesn't quite make sense. But once we get to the main conflict, which really comes about like the last half hour of the movie, then it starts to make more sense. Sure, yeah, but that and also the serial killer, the movie had this weird way of being like, oh, let me set up this plot point and then I'll execute on it and then it'll be done and then I'll set up a new one and then execute on it and then it'll be done. You'd think you'd just start setting up Stilson from the beginning. You'd start setting up the serial killer from the beginning, maybe this rich family with the son. Uh, from like all these things that are going to execute later, you'd think you'd set them up at the beginning then you don't know where the plot's really going, and then they all end up having, they, they're all interconnected by him. You know, each of these things feels very, like, you're given it one at a time. They're almost like vignettes. It was strange. I almost feel like if the movie had been longer, that kind of plot structure would have fit better. It just felt like uh, they're, they're trying to keep it 90 minutes or something, but it just kind of felt like, I kept being like, wait, what is, which one of these plot lines is this movie going to follow? Because to me, when the serial killer thing started, I was like, okay, so this is what the plot's going to be now, him trying to get the serial killer, all of that stuff before was just set up. But anyways, he goes to this first crime scene with the cops in this fantastic tunnel. I'd say it's the best set piece of the movie. It's this like huge, like dramatically lit tunnel. Yeah, that's a great shot. And it feels cold and isolated. Like New England in winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's part of what uh, affected me by it. But yeah, I was just very impressed by the set piece. Um, and I'm kind of expecting something bigger to happen here. But then it's his first time trying out if he can glean anything from the crime scene. And they, they have him hold this, like, you know, empty packet of cigarettes and he's just waiting and waiting. He's like, nah, well, didn't work. And now they're going to this other crime scene. It's kind of like, did we need this tunnel scene then if it, it had no consequence? And we're literally right about to go to the, the main one where he actually solves the crime. Sure, I, I agree that it feels a little scattered at times and some things don't feel like the best use of their running time. <laughs> yeah, very odd choice. One of my gripes with the movie is that his abilities are pretty nebulous, and we really don't get a, the idea of what the limitations are, how they work exactly. Sometimes things can get over-explained, so at least it doesn't suffer from that. But if I were to play devil's advocate, if I were to try to defend this movie, which ultimately I'm going to because I am recommending it, so even though, even though I have my bones to pick with it, I would still say go see it. It helps put you into the character because he wasn't given a manual on what he can do. So, yeah, you're going to have, you're going to, it's going to feel like vignettes, just a series of problems he's involved with based on the visions he's having. Because I suppose if you were that guy, that's how life would play out for you. You might be grocery shopping, and then all of a sudden you touch the bag boy, and then you get a vision, whether you wanted to or not, whether it was, uh, the right time for it or not, 
So to have that scene in the tunnel, I think it does serve a purpose, whether or not it was important enough to show, but it's him testing his ability. He's not just a psychic who can touch a personal item or touch a wall and get psychic impressions. He needs to touch people, because I believe in every instance where he uses his power, he's physically touching somebody, right? Yeah. I think that's a good little dead-end moment to show us that he doesn't have it all figured out. Sometimes when you're trying to adapt a book, it especially if it's episodic like this or like these vignettes like you're saying, you really need to make it a three-hour-long runtime or something to do it justice. Another problem I have with this movie that I noticed more on this watch was that the production value feels a little cheap at times. A big part of this felt like a TV movie because so much of it is shot indoors. Sure, they have a World War II flashback, which is kind of nice, but even that, they don't take it to any extreme. And and it just doesn't feel very big, even in the, the bedroom with the little girl when the fire is happening and he's having the vision of her. That's probably one of the more energetic moments of the movie, and not a lot happens. So I, I kind of knew going into this what the overall plot was going to be just because of, you know, its importance in pop culture. Um, but him just laying there and, like, immediately going to this fire and this girl screaming, yeah, it kind of plays a little funny now because it's not, you know, there's not that much smoke. It doesn't look like, it doesn't look as dire as a little girl in a house on fire might look, you know? Yeah, oh, well, it looked like something made for TV. The most egregious version of that was the visions he has about Stilson, this kind of war room or something where they're trying to get this guy to put his hand on a button, like a literal hand on the button situation, scanner thing, and you remember this? And then the later on, uh, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a magazine. Uh, he's sitting there. I mean, you know the scene I'm talking about. Yeah, but then the room around him... Looks like a stage. Looks like a stage, yeah. It's (laughs) almost like if they had set that up as like his visions are kind of incomplete, so there's kind of no background. And like that almost, you know, like the show Stranger Things worked with a kind of set piece like that where it's like this total black void and then there's certain elements, pieces of set there, but it's, you know, incomplete. Before he's having like full production value in his visions, I mean... The biggest, probably, I, I can't imagine it wasn't the biggest budget scene in the film, the World War II flashback. So his visions are like super high budget. And then by the end, it's like they ran out of It's like the, the production team in his head is like, oh, here, we'll just get a couch and a lamp. Yeah, there is nothing behind him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so there's the book, there's this movie, and then there is a TV show. And all three have a different explanation of what the dead zone is or means. In this movie, Johnny Smith is saying the dead zone has to do with, uh, and it happens specifically with the boy going through the ice, the kid he was tutoring. He realized for the first time that when he has visions pertaining to the future, that they aren't set in stone because he did keep that kid from drowning. So that's the dead zone. It's that 
space where it could happen or he could change it. And the fact that he could change the future plays a larger role later in the story with Greg Stilson, who may or may not become president and set off some nuclear uh, missiles. You know, I wasn't expecting that, like, oh, the visions are going to have, like, uh, he's going to have to figure out, like, what is this dead zone thing? Like, I actually liked that concept, but I was just like, so why wouldn't you show something in the movie? Like, he's seeing the kids fall through the ice, and then suddenly it's this, like, weird nebulous gray thing. Or I don't know, maybe they couldn't figure out how they wanted to show that. He just goes to the doctor, and he's like, something was different in the vision. And I'm like, what was different? (laughs) Yeah. Nothing was different, you know? It's like, oh, did he not see the final cut? Like, <laughs> you know, like, uh, no, it wasn't different, uh, Johnny. Sorry, actually, it was exactly the same. It was like, oh, oh, okay, nothing to worry about then. Going back to the scene where Johnny's having the vision, he's shaking Greg Stilson's hand during a rally, and Stilson is supposedly president in the future. He wants to set off some nukes. Like you said, he, he has this general who he's trying to force to put his hand on the literal uh, scanner that hooks up to the nuke so he can press the button and set everything off. That scene encapsulates a lot of what's going on in this movie for me. It's a great character moment for Stilson. It's a great performance by Martin Sheen. That is undercut a little bit by the production because that... That screen, that uh, that panel to set off the nukes, that thing looks like a Fisher Price toy. It looks something out of it looks like a prop that was left over from sixty Star Trek. There's no labels on the buttons; they light up. <laughs> to go from a shot of that to this tour de force moment by Martin Sheen, I mean, he's just so he's just giving it hundred and ten percent, and I love his performance. And then we cut to that stupid thing. I think his best was like when they were watching the TV and he's on TV giving a speech and it's just going. Like I was, I always remember thinking like, wow, he really went off here. He must have, he, I, he's very believable as giving this over the top speech to all these workers or something. Yeah. And you know, he's unhinged. Oh yeah, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but then, yeah, that, and then the, the other thing about that scene, it's like, they're the only ones in the room. And he's like, put your hand on there or we'll cut it off and put it there. And I'm just going like, just hold his hand to that thing. <laughs> you, you, you can overpower him. We've already demonstrated this is a big, tall goon guy with you. Just have him grab it. Like, you don't even need to convince this guy of anything. <laughs> you know, and it was just like, oh, it'd be so much easier to just write that away. But being like, oh, this general is the only one that knows this code. So they need him to tell them the code or something. But it's like a face, it's like a hand scanner. I mean, go, go for it, you know. It's a character moment to show that Stilson is always going to try to bully you first. And then who knows what he's going to do after, but he wants to take charge, command all the time. And there are probably other movies that have kind of shown this type of thing. You know, you'd go back in the past, try to change something. But what? But that's normally involving some kind of time travel. But this had an opportunity to, without time travel, show, okay, he does. he, he decides to kill Stilson, but then something worse happens. You know, I I was kind of expecting it to go there. Still, there are things where he tries to save someone. You know, he saves the kid, the kid that he's kind of tutoring, but then we still find out other kids still end up going to the hockey practice. So 
you know, he didn't, he didn't, wasn't able to save the day. I thought that was, that's probably my favorite part of the film there. Cause it shows like, okay, well maybe just cause you have this power doesn't make it that easy to just save everything. You know, now you have this info, what are you going to do? You know? Oh, there's so many juicy morsels in this that they, they really could have made a whole meal of. Sure, uh, it feels a little undercooked in parts, but I, I'd rather have it leave me wanting a little bit more than overdoing things and telling me everything and being a two-and-a-half-hour movie. So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm curious, Ian, would you recommend this for people to watch? I would if you were someone that wants to... Um... The same way I would recommend something like Star Wars or um, Godfather or something that's become so much a part of the culture that you should see it just at, you know just out of historical context. All these shows that you've grown up watching or movies, you'd be like, oh, well, this is what started all of that. This is the first version of that. And yeah, and it did hit on a few scenes, like I said, and also near the ending, um, there's this kind of climactic part in a in a kind of town hall or something. I found that to be very intense. So yeah, there's enough here to recommend. I'm kind of still on the fence though. I mean, I think there are, you know, if I had to only like pick a couple movies, this probably wouldn't be one of the ones I'd recommend. <laughs> but you know, it's not, it's not like, you know, oh, terrible. It wouldn't go in your movie vault to survive for all time? Probably not. There are enough people that would have a lot of fun watching this. I think you get where I'm coming from here. Well, that's all right. I'll take your half-hearted recommendation, and I'll, I'll multiply it with my own. Yes, this movie has a lot of problems, at least with the first viewing. Those problems won't really hit you too hard until afterward and you think about it. But when the movie's happening, I feel like you can get invested enough to just enjoy the story as it's playing out. If you want... A good Christopher Walken performance where he's not overly Christopher Walken. This is a good movie. And then if you're if you're a Cronenberg fan and you just want to complete the set, this is an interesting movie considering Videodrome came out earlier in the year when this was released. A couple years later he did The Fly. So this is an interesting little weird movie that a lot of the things he's known for aren't really there, but it's it's still a pretty well-made movie. I was thinking about that. I actually I looked on IMDb before watching it just to see where it fell in his, you know, oeuvre. And I like I was like, okay, you did the fly right after this. I was expecting more of that Cronenbergism, yeah. And it's like, okay, it's kind of interesting to see a director dipping their foot in a different genre. Um, and it, lo it looks to me like he got in, he's like, mm, let me go back to what I was doing. And then like <laughs> went right, <laughs> right into the fly, which is probably, yeah, definitely my favorite of his films. And this is a bit of a, a proto version of that movie because like the fly, the dead zone also includes this love story angle that you could argue doesn't quite fit with the rest of what's going on. However, it does give the main characters a bit more dimension and pathos, and they both do ultimately, I feel, work out pretty well by the end of the movie, like there's a resolution to it. Not only that, there's also the, they're both about a main character getting 
new abilities in the fly. It's not supernatural, but they're both getting kind of out of this reality abilities. And then instead of playing out like a superhero movie, it gets just a lot darker and more messed up. And I mean... (laughs) Yeah, it's not for the better. In both cases, it's to their detriment that they have these abilities that leads to bad things for both of them. I wonder if, like, he wanted to do the fly after this as a more true-to-his-older style, but working with the same kind of subject matter. Maybe he really got into this whole, like, oh, you think if you get a special ability, that would be awesome, but actually, it totally sucks. You just want to be normal again. Any superhero movie does the exact opposite. This would be good to watch just to kind of do the thought experiment of like, wait, do I actually want to be like Spider-Man? That might actually really suck to have all this new responsibility and it doesn't always work. And you actually, maybe I wouldn't be able to save everybody and save the day. So in that way, it's also, yeah, interesting concept for a film. Well, this is great, Ian. Sounds like I've brought you over to my side and especially after I edit out your less glowing review (laughs) we'll be on the same page (laughs) don't don't edit it down too much yeah it'll end up it'll end up like the dead zone if you edit it down too much we gotta get (laughs) it'll be more satisfying for the audience to hear me kind of coming around here if they've heard me trashing it before (laughs) oh yeah yeah it'll be a complete story don't worry i'll I'll leave it in (laughs) (laughs) cool